From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. My guest on the podcast today is Edwin L. Turner, who is Professor of Astrophysical Sciences at Princeton University. Professor Turner was here at CTI last month giving a presentation to our CTI fellows on astrobiology. His presentation is titled Improbable Life, an unappealing but plausible scenario for life's origin. Joining us in the conversation are two of the CTI fellows, Susan Schneider, a philosopher, and Robin Lovin, a theologian and ethicist. In the course of the conversation, Dr. Turner discusses not only his basic thesis on the improbability of life, but also questions related to how he became interested in science, the relationship of science to other disciplines, and many other fascinating topics. Thanks for joining the conversation. So I have with me today a guest who is here in our colloquium today, Edwin L. Turner, is a professor of astrophysical sciences at Princeton University. So I'd like to begin uh, by talking about one aspect that we didn't talk about today in the colloquium during your presentation with our, our CTI fellows, which is how did you come to have an interest in, that, in astronomy? You talked a little bit about your later interest in astrobiology, but your own beginning in career in science. Even. I have a good story. I don't even actually know if it's true, but uh, <laughs> it, it makes a good story at least, which is um, I've been interested in astronomy from a very early age. My mother uh, claimed that when I was six years old, I informed her that I would either be an astronomer or a garbage man. I grew up <laughs> because I liked the big garbage truck and <laughs> I liked looking at the sky. Um, and uh, where that early interest came from, I don't actually know. But the best story is that uh, when I was three years old, I had polio. That's where this comes from, the last, last year before they admitted the vaccine. And when I was a toddler, you know, preschool, I had lots of orthopedic contractions, and we didn't have air conditioning. This was in Tennessee, very hot, and I couldn't sleep very well. And so my mother used to take me outside and lay me on a blanket at night and lay down beside me and talk to me about the stars and so on and the sky. And uh, I think uh, I always like that sort of distant perspective on our, you know, the, the bad things that happen uh, to people on Earth don't seem quite so significant when you start thinking about, you know, we're a speck in the cosmic, you know, hugeness of the cosmos and only a moment in time and all of that sort of thing. I, that perspective appealed to me early on. And except for a brief flirtation in, in university with our AI work at that time, I've sort of always been on track to towards, um, always wanted to be an astronomer. So it just seemed unlikely that anybody would pay me to do it. But So two of the other folks I've got in the room here are Robin Lovin, who's the senior research fellow at CTI, and Susan Schneider, one of the, the research fellows. So the two of you were, were in the colloquium this morning where Dr. Turner gave his his lecture, which we can talk about more in a minute, but I was wondering if the two of you have any questions that you didn't have time to, to ask this morning. This might be a good time to raise those now. Well, he, maybe he can just explain his hypothesis for the listeners, and then yeah, we can get, yeah. talk about details. Okay. Uh, right. Well, the, the hypothesis, which I've sometimes called the improbable life scenario, 
is simply that um, life arose on Earth uh, due to some extraordinarily improbable uh, statistical event, some real statistical fluke, something that would happen so rarely that within the whole observable universe of you know, 10 to the 11 galaxies and maybe 10 to the 22 planets and uh, 13 billion years of history and so on, it's only happened once. And in fact, even in such a large volume of space and time, the probability of happening even once isn't very likely. So in this model, the complexity of, of molecular biology of life uh, on Earth uh, is explained by uh, some leap in complexity between abiotic systems to biotic systems uh, due to some unknown, very, very rare event. And this is motivated by various lines of evidence I explained in the presentation I gave. But if this is the case, then uh, the implication is there's no other life within the observable universe, and the nearest other planet which life is probably many observable universes away from here. And how does that differ from a rare Earth hypothesis? Well, the rare Earth hypothesis emphasized, it's a sort of subset of the arguments I made, it emphasized the special properties of the Earth, thus the name, as, a, uh, as an astronomical object, and how uh, there's enough sort of things about our astronomical environment, about the Earth itself, that uh, are probably or plausibly quite rare. Uh, that suggests that life would be rare because suitable environments are rare. I'm not all that convinced by those arguments, although I think there's something to them, but what I emphasized today uh, was the, the improbability of getting chemical systems as complex as those that are needed to get natural selection, Darwinian evolution started, uh, and the absence of any intermediate steps between uh, in nature between much, much simpler uh, chemical systems that do exist in nature and uh, the sort of minimal system to get evolution going. So uh, I would say the biological or molecular biological uh, evidence of that life is rare is stronger than that, the, just that the environment is rare. Uh, I should probably say that the, the term rare earth, which was a, the title of a book coined by Brownlee and Ward, uh, that book was written I'm not sure exactly, but roughly 15 years ago, maybe. And at that time, the, uh, our knowledge of how unusual the Earth... Uh, there's been a lot of scientific progress since then, and I, I think the Earth looks probably less unusual now than it did then. So some of those arguments are perhaps not quite as strong now, although the general argument is still there, but maybe a little less uh, compelling. Is, is this then primarily an explanatory hypothesis to explain why... Fermi paradox and so forth, that we have not, in fact, found signs of, of other life? Or is, is the explanation a product of the, of the theorizing? Well, it, it does predict that we won't find other life uh, by any means, of course, either sending probes out or listening for SETI signals or having uh, alien uh, colonists. Uh, come here, or anything like that. Those are all predictions of it. Uh, it was more motivated, however, by trying to explain this incredible complexity of the chemical systems and the lack of any hint of a root or a mechanism that would produce that sort of complex chemical system capable of beginning evolution. So, you know, it, it sort of appeals to, you know, some something very rare happening because it seems hard to 
at this point in our knowledge to see how it would have happened in any deterministic way. But to be honest, it was also motivated by what I think is a uh, extremely naive and uh, optimistic uh, tendency in the astrobiological communities these days to assume that if physical conditions are even remotely compatible with life, that there will be life there. Prominent uh, astrobiologists and exoplanet researchers have been known to say, oh, there's probably life on this planet, simply because the temperatures are in the range that would are probably in the range that would permit liquid water to exist. That doesn't even tell us that liquid water does exist, but you know, the sort of conventional wisdom in astrobiology is that if you have liquid water, you have normal cosmic abundances of chemical elements, and you have a free a source of free energy, or free in the thermodynamic sense energy, not that nobody's charging you for it, then you just have to wait a little while and, and life will get going. And I think that's uh, almost willfully uh, or irrationally avoiding facing what looks like an extremely challenging explanatory problem. I think people don't want to talk about it because they don't have anything much to say. You know, there's nowhere to go with it. It's so hard, we'd, nobody really knows how to tackle it. So. And it, it equally difficult for the philosophers and the theologians to know where to go with it. That is to say, uh, the, the the uniqueness of the event and the 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 absence, uh, you know, of a clear causal explanatory uh, framework makes it, I think, equally difficult to to talk about how we ought to understand ourselves in relationship to the the beginning of life on. It's a sort of it's a sort of measure of desperation. I mean, I, my background in cosmology caused me to bring this brought this to mind because it's widely believed by fundamental physicists that explaining the value of the cosmological constant or of the dark energy is incredibly difficult. I mean, almost insoluble. The most prominent fundamental physicists uh, tend to feel that uh, that's you know, hard to imagine even how you would explain that. So one of the standard explanations there is called the anthropic principle, and it uh, appeals to both a selection effect that the cosmological constant has to be small or we wouldn't exist, just as this improbable life theory appeals to we wouldn't be here unless life had gotten started here, and it also appeals to some extremely improbable event, in, in their case something like a 10 to the minus 120th probability, and uh, the way they get around that is just saying, well, in an infinite universe, it had to occur somewhere, and we have to be one of the places it occurred. So the argument is very parallel to the argument on the, from cosmology on the dark energy. You referred to your, in the title of your, <clears throat> of your talk as this is an unappealing but plausible thesis. So what, why is it unappealing? Well, it's unappealing. Uh, first of all, it's not unappealing to everyone. Some people really like the idea, but a small minority, at least among astronomers, origin of life researchers, as far as I know. Uh, the reason it's unappealing is for astrobiologists, it means the field is searching for something that's not there. You know, it's like if you wanted to 
specialize in studying unicorns or dragons, it would be bad news <laughs> that there aren't any. So, uh, though this might not necessarily stop you from studying. Yeah. So, so it's bad from that point of view. For the origin of life people, it makes it very hard to imagine that they would ever succeed in knowing. Maybe they would have more insight into what the improbable event is. Maybe, but even that's not so easy. Mm -hmm. So it means that you know they're very likely very far. And I think, in a more general human sense, it's unappealing because it makes the universe more dull and less mm -hmm. rich than it might be. The universe would be more interesting if, if it were you know the universe of. Star Trek or something where you can go around and you know each planet has some something going on and even though they all speak English but the uh, you know it, it, it would just make a, a, a richer uh, universe it's sort of the same reason we don't want most of the species to go extinct you know if, if there were nothing but cockroaches on earth it wouldn't be as rich and interesting a tale as if you know we have all of the life forms we have and we'd like to have more out there in the universe so it's you know, it's, it's just not a very charming uh, uh, reality to uh, contemplate. What I don't understand is why people that really like it like it. I can't answer that <laughs> So who is who? Where, who have you heard say? I mean, not who, but like, what did they say they liked about it? Do you, uh, folks who you've heard? Uh, well, it wasn't really. I've never heard of a clear explanation of it. The uh, at least one of the. Uh, people that I know feels this way very strongly, uh, who's you know a, a professor of astronomy and a very solid scientist, is also uh, a deeply uh, Christian uh, Catholic person, and uh, I think perhaps felt that this. I mean, he hasn't reacted to my particular presentation. He's just always said he thinks it would be more appealing if if we were unique. Mm. I think you know the ideas. Mm. Of, God made creatures in his image and gave them a special role in uh, the metaphysical in theology, then it would, yeah. doesn't make sense there'd be tons of Sure. You've probably heard of Robin Hansen's great filter argument. Okay, so Nick Bostrom has a spin where he talks about it, and he says, gee... Um, if we find all this microbial life throughout the universe, that's actually a really bad thing because we're not finding lots of intelligent life. And so there must be a great filter that's filtering out the development of intelligent life from microbial life. And that implies that we're heading toward that filter, perhaps. And he's worried about global existential risk like AI, nanotechnology, gray goose scenarios. Right. And so I was wondering if you had a position on the great filter, I suppose it would be, well, microbial life itself is so rare that that's where the filter is even earlier. Right. Uh, in this scenario, yeah. And uh, the Rare Earth uh, book was actually mostly arguing for a filter between microbial life and more advanced life forms. Yeah. Uh, it, they didn't actually argue that life itself would be rare, but that conditions that would allow the development of advanced life might be. Uh, quite rare, even though it might permit microbial life. Uh, as far as the position on the filter downstream from us, I doubt it. I doubt it would be that efficient to filter. It's certainly easy enough to imagine that we'll do ourselves in, but to imagine that every 
you know, that if, if there was actually an yeah. advanced life on billions of planets, that, you know, they would all do it. Maybe half of them would, maybe 90% of them would, but surely it's not some, it's not that inevitable that uh, uh, we would extinct ourselves. That, it doesn't sound to me like, uh, you know, law. I mean, you just take two different human societies or, this, you know, the two different fairly intelligent species on Earth. Are, are the same things going to filter us out and the cetacea, the whales and dolphins out? Probably not. I mean, it may well be that neither survive, but it just sounds like too uniform uh, uh, an argument. One, one quote that you had in your presentation that I, I really liked from Richard Feynman, I think it's much more interesting to live not knowing than to have answers which might be wrong. Right. That seems to sort of encapsulate this, this sort of project in a sense. Right, I think so. And I think it was a critique. Uh, Feynman, uh, who I knew a bit, was very, um, very, very strong in, on empirical science. Another mm-hmm. Feynman quote of which I'm fond is he said, the essence of science, its definition almost, is that the only, with emphasis on only, test of the validity of an idea is experiment. So no matter how crazy it is, no matter how little sense it makes, no matter how parsimonious the explanation is, you have to test it somehow. And he was, he was very big on that. I don't necessarily feel as strongly about it myself. But I think scientists are quite subject to, if there's a question that's important and we really, really want to know the answer, and we write a lot of papers about it and think about it a lot, we become convinced that we know the answer even without very compelling evidence. I will certainly offend some of my colleagues if they listen to this podcast by saying uh, string theory is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many of the most you know, brilliant minds in physics for more than a generation now uh, have devoted enormous effort and developed a great literature and done fantastic mathematics and... Uh, uh, put so much effort and time and their careers and positions and prizes and everything into the development of those ideas of fundamental physics that many of them find it almost impossible to imagine that it isn't true. I mean, there's various versions of string theory, and they would say, well, we don't know which one, but, but that it could be all completely wrong. Yes. Many of them just feel is extremely unlikely. But I think what the Feynman quote says, I think what Feynman himself would have said, and what I feel is, without some experimental verification, it could very easily be wrong. You know, that's uh, just the way it is. No matter how uh, reasonable something seems to us and how well it fits uh, what we expect, uh, we need to test it and uh, we need to have some verification. And and in the context of my talk, I was talking about this idea that... uh, life arises rather easily. I mean, we, we sort of see the prebiotic conditions and, the, and then the biology on Earth, and we think, well, something happened there. We don't know what it is, but it probably happens a lot. So, Can you say a bit more about that? Because I think I'm thinking a little bit about media portrayals of science, which I think, looking at your bio, you've actually studied that some or well, taught courses I, in it. Maybe. I teach a freshman seminar on science in the media with uh-huh. With a science journalist uh, as a co-instructor, and we sort of do, you know, scientists versus journalists sort of uh, engagement of the students. So yeah, one of the, one of the things there that I find interesting is just a hunch I have is that 
oftentimes the public sees science as this body of knowledge as mainly about what scientists know. And what I admire most about scientists like yourself is when I hear scientists talking about all the things we don't know. Science is about, you know, pointing to those things. And this point in particular about, as you're saying, the origin of life is still very, there's a lot of unknowns in terms of how life arose. Maybe you could say a bit more about that because I think there, even in that, on that particular question, there might be a lot of sense in the broader public that science has, amongst people who are, you know, sympathetic to science, which is not everyone, but there is a sense that, that science has sort of figured that, that one out. Uh, well, to big questions like some of the ones we've been discussing and many others as well, people really want to have answers and scientists really want to have answers. And there's a, a very great tendency to take whatever our current best guess is uh, and, and proceed as though it's true. Science itself has a considerable ability to self-correct and weed those things out. And in some ways, science you know, is not about learning things. It's about removing things that are wrong from what you know. But I, I agree, that doesn't really come across usually uh, to the public. Uh, usually, if a scientist uh, is asked a question by a reporter, they'll just say what they think the most likely answer is, or they'll say, you know, this is the current scientific consensus is, or our best evidence is. And they'll maybe put, maybe or maybe not, usually put some sort of little caveat. And I think the public mostly doesn't hear that. But what those caveats, you know, or doesn't retain it is part of the message. But, you know, the translation of those caveats into ordinary English is, this may very well be untrue, blah. <laughs> uh, uh, and in fact, as far as things that are topics of current research, historically looking at them, you would conclude that most of what we think we know is probably wrong. Because if you look at most questions to which we say now have a pretty solid answer, there was a, you know, there was a whole series of, of uh, ideas that turned out to be wrong before we got to one that you know, has so been so robustly tested that you're quite confident of it. So, so if it's not something that's been demonstrated conclusively, it's most likely not true. Uh, it's not likely that you're hearing, you know, the the view that will turn out to actually be correct. That's a sort of statistical argument. So, Ed, I'm curious um, if your hypothesis is correct. I'm wondering about the social implications. I mean, do we have a sort of moral imperative as a civilization to expand throughout the galaxy since we are? If your hypothesis is correct, the only case of intelligent life within the observable universe? Well, I, I don't have a really strong opinion on that myself, uh, you know, personally, but um, I'm not going to be around all that much longer anyway. So, But uh, I think that is uh, a view that many people have, and it's a sort of natural extrapolation of, of what people and life in general has done on the Earth is it's expanded to occupy unoccupied environments. And of course, often expanded to occupy previously occupied environments as well. Uh, and if you know the rest of the universe is devoid of life available, so to speak, to us, I think it's likely that that will will try to do that to the best of our ability. You know, the universe is really, really big, and things are really, really far away, and it's not so easy, but uh, I think it will be possible. People have thought about this problem, their projects, and so on. So, yeah, I think if, if the scenario is correct, then you know, a plausible guess at what the galaxy will look like a million years from now is that life from Earth will have occupied you know, much of the 
currently bear in real estate. You know, is that a good thing? Is life a good thing? Is is life also so defined by our terrestrial situation that uh, that we we might have a hard time recognizing ourselves in in these co- colonial enterprises? I mean, you know, the the if if we go by analogy to uh, terrestrial exploration, you know, the French, the Spanish, several generations later knew who they were, <laughs> whether, whether this holds true over millennia and light years is another, yeah. another matter. I, I think that's true. I, I, I suspect if we do spread through the galaxy, we are not going to look much like we do now, because if for no other reason, our molecular biology is coming under our control, and if we're going to uh, yeah. travel yes. through interstellar space, probably one of the most important enabling technologies will be bod- modifying our yes. own biological nature, or maybe even you know becoming cyborgs mm-hmm. or becoming machines or who knows what. Um, so I think it's uh, quite possible that... Uh, if our descendants occupy our the galaxy, they won't look very much like us. Uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that something that looks a lot like us won't still be around. Oh. There may just be a lot of diversity. So I wonder how confident you are in your hypothesis. Would you say, suggest that SETI just stop? No, because, first of all, because... Um, that's the best way to falsify and test the hypothesis. We've just right. been talking point. about science needs to test things. And one of the best things about this theory, or, uh, compared to most other origin of life theories, is that it is so decisively falsifiable. Finding other life that originated separately from the life on Earth, whether by SETI or by sending probes to look for yeah. life beneath the ice of Europa or whatever, or creating life in the lab and so on. There are many ways in which it can be determined mm-hmm. that this is incorrect. So that would certainly be one reason to continue SETI, to test the hypothesis. Uh, but your harder question is how confident I am in it. <laughs> and I would say not at all. Uh, uh, I just think it's as, you know, I think as Feynman admonished us, it's important to know what you don't know. And we don't know how life got started. I certainly don't claim that some extremely rare statistical, we know that it was created by some extremely rare statistical event. I just think that's a, one of the options on the table that we should take seriously and not ignore. I think it is mostly being ignored, but I think it's, it's maybe it's the best model we have. But, you know, if you, if you made me bet, I think I would bet, you know, if you held a gun to my head and I had to bet my house or something, I'd probably bet against it. But I'd bet against any single hypothesis. Something you said at the near the end of the the morning when you were talking about the role of science vis-a-vis other disciplines. You said that science is a hammer, and it's really good at you know hammering nails, but not everything's a nail. Yeah, what do you see as the role of interdisciplinary dialogue? I mean, of course, science itself doesn't answer non-scientific questions, but as or, as people, we have more questions than just scientific ones. So, how do we integrate well our knowledge in some sense? In in I'm not sure I can answer that question very well, but I would say that science is the, what I would call real science, is the, the study of questions that are so simple and easy that they yield to sort of linear deductive thinking and simple uh, experimental testing of hypotheses 
Um, you know, and for problems of that type, science is an incredible, which are, so to speak, for nails, uh, science is a, an incredibly good hammer, and it, we, it has done so very much for us. The world we're sitting in has been transformed by it and to a large extent created by it, and, you know, many of us are only here because of it and so on. Um, that it's it's sort of hard for us to imagine uh, or face the fact that there are problems that are not nails and won't yield to that sort of approach. Do we have other approaches? Um, yes, but none of them, religion is such an approach, uh, sort of intuitive uh, introspection almost, meditation, let me say. There, there are what you might call ways of knowing, if I can... Borrow, borrow a phrase that my friend Pete Hutt uses a lot. There are different ways of knowing. Um, none of them have the sort of compelling demonstrated track record uh, uh, that science has, although I would also say that uh, they are not without their successes as well. Uh, uh, since we're you know, in a religious institution, I, I think Religion can certainly point to great successes in transforming people's lives and, and resolving some of their, you know, most difficult uh, uh, problems for them in ways that I don't think science could ever attempt to do. But none of them are quite in that hammer category where you can pick it up and train your graduate student to use it and <laughs> have them go out and nail the house together, sort of thing. They're they're more uh, uncertain and uh, unreliable, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we, in a way, most need is is other ways of discovering the truth that are as effective, if any such exist. There's no guarantee they do. But, uh, I guess I'm just thinking of the question Susan asked a moment ago about, say that, that your thesis uh, turns out to be true, what does that say for whether we should go into space doing X, Y, Z? I mean... That moral question is sort of at a different level from the scientific question. It's like tangential to it in some sense. So what are the resources maybe that we bring to bear to answer ethical questions? Just for example, even setting aside religion, just ethical questions are, are, are already going to be well, something as I, else. Yeah. I, I, as I suspect all three of you know better than I know, you know, there are utilitarianism, there, there are approaches <laughs> to answering these right. questions that, right, right, right. that are based on certain assumptions, yeah. uh, and you can argue about the assumptions, or the, right, right, right. Uh, but of course that's also true of science, yeah, of it's course. based on assumptions that you can argue about as well, but, mm -hmm. but if you're trying to move away from some sort of uh, systematic ethics or moral mm -hmm. system, I don't really know what to appeal to other than perhaps just some sort, sort of innate sense of uh, uh, a question I pose sometimes, I have uh, a different lecture I give called The Limits of Reductionism. Why, why is it worse to burn a child to keep yourself warm than to burn a log to keep yourself warm? Can string theory tell us that? don't think so. Uh, is there any question at all that it is worse? I don't think so. Um, and do you need a, a complex moral system to know that it's worse? I don't think so either. In some ways, they're, you know, I don't know what to say, self-evident truths or something like that. 
that's about the best I can do. It's pretty limited, and you know, it, it works okay if you pick a really stark example like that. <laughs> but if you uh, if you pick the kind of ethical questions most of us face in day to day life, which are not you know black and white evil and sure, sure. so on, I don't know whether it's it's very reliable to rely on that sort of clear and eighth view of what's a self-evident good or bad. Well, I, I completely agree, and I wonder if your example doesn't give rise to an insight about cosmic expansion. I mean, I think in your case, which, you know, is such a lovely case, um, what matters to us is that that child has a capacity to feel pain, and this connects up with our lunchtime discussion on, you know, conscious experience. And, you know, I think what is special about intelligent life, at least the life that we know, is that it's capable of feeling pain. And even richer than that, it has the capacity for conscious experience. And it seems that one could move from that point to a desire to enrich the galaxy with life that experiences insofar as we make sure that those creatures don't experience pain and they have high quality lives. Right. Um, you know, I think there's a path from, you know, leading from that uh, uh, sort of perspective on pain uh, and awareness of pain and self-awareness as being the sort of coin of the realm. Uh, you know, is it as you say, we, we feel that the child would experience pain, the log wouldn't. And, you know, pretty soon we're talking Peter Singer, mm -hmm. my colleague at Princeton. Uh, I have some considerable sympathy for that point of view. I don't think it's crazy. To put it mildly, it, you know, it's, it's about as close to rational as I know how to, would know how to get. That said, I'd be hard-pressed to demonstrate that uh, it was uh, the case. And, you know, so with a galaxy in which there was more awareness and experience um, be better than one which, uh, in which there was none or less. Sounds right to me, but again, I, I'm not sure I could, I could really com compellingly demonstrate that. And, and kind of, well, anyway, and until we can understand consciousness and awareness better, I think these, these sorts of ideas will be slippery anyway. I mean, even for a human being, the same human being, your consciousness and awareness is different at different times and, you know, as you pass through your life, depending on uh, your age and what you just drank and, you know, uh, you know, altered states of consciousness can be obtained by uh, a variety of means and, and, of course, in Eastern religions we have ideas of achieving a, a sort of transcendence that in a way erases normal consciousness and replaces it with something more profound and deeper. So who's to say whether it be awareness and a consciousness that we experience uh, in our normal lives or in our most profound moments is the limit of, of, of what can be. Uh, we're now pretty well far beyond astrophysics, but you know, where are they is the big question, and uh, improbable life is one answer. They're just not yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> no. Well, question I had, too, was if this is the 800-pound gorilla that everyone is sort of reluctant to point to, 
how did you come to sort of... Uh, I'm just uh, like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I can answer the question slightly, not so much directly, but um, uh, Arnie Levine, who's a professor in systems biology down at the Institute for Advanced Study here, uh, set up a conference a number of years ago on uh, origin of life, you know, with biologists, and he wanted somebody to give them a little entertainment lecture, so to speak, on exoplanets, which at that time was considered, I mean, the field has been moving so fast we knew less, but, you know, it, it wasn't that it had anything much to do with the science of the conference, but uh, he just thought it would entertain them, you know, there'd be other, perhaps, uh, environments to think about and so on, so anyway, he invited me, I gave the talk, and I hung around and listened to the people talking about the origin of life, and I... For some reason, I like problems that are too hard to solve, so, uh, as you can tell. <laughs> and uh, that's why I tried cosmology, and it betrayed me and got the answers. But um, anyway, the, um, you know, so I started going to some of those conferences. I attended a few of them, and I think slowly developed a perspective that, you know, is kind of typical of what happens when somebody outside the field, you know, comes into something, you're kind of haven't learned to ignore the gorilla shot or that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you were hearing the papers and you were saying, that this doesn't quite add up. I'm seeing a whole area. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah, sort of glossing over. Yeah. This kind yeah. Of and, I, and the thing I noticed, which I eventually, I mean, initially accepted, was they do have this tendency, you know, when you bring up these points, say, well, that's not the only possible explanation. It could be this. It could be that. Absolutely true. Um, everything I talked about, you can possibly understand that. In other ways, and I've I've given this talk to both groups of astrobiologists and origin of life things, and you know that's what they say. Nobody says, "Oh, that's wrong." Uh, you know, you've got the facts wrong. I mean, I wasn't sure of that to start with. I mean, I would not my field, but you know, nobody stood up and said, "Oh, you don't understand how proteins work." That's not right. You know, they just say, "Yeah, right," but it might be something. You know, it doesn't have to be that, and you know, that's perhaps the practical thing to do because they, I mean. You know, I have tenure and I'm an astrophysicist. I don't have to solve the problem, but they need to write papers right. and get grants and give their graduate students something to do. So it's pretty much a waste of their time to sit around thinking that the problem might be insoluble. They have to sort of ignore it uh, in practical <laughs> terms, although in intellectual terms they should acknowledge it. And so it's kind of the Thomas Kuhn issue. I was thinking of Kuhn when you were yeah. talking about the sociology of string theory. Yeah, and exactly. it's very much like that where, you know, there just needs to be some anomalies that can't be beaten down and the older people are more invested and really intractable. They will not change their mind. Right, right, right. Philosophies like that too, obviously. I think people are like yeah, that. Yeah, people, exactly. yeah it yeah. drives me crazy. That's 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 what that's certainly something that uh, that the media gets wrong about scientists too. Yeah. The the objective nature of and self error self-correcting nature of science is sometimes mistakenly thought to apply to scientists but generally doesn't I would say I don't think the scientists are no less inclined I mean this in science there's at least the ideal and occasionally you can see uh, see examples of it I was incredibly impressed when my friend and colleague Bill press who I went to graduate school with and so on uh, he was involved in a, in a big controversy over it was some particular way of measuring the age of the universe, and it was this other camp, and it was one of these entrenched, you know, academic things that um, 
you know, you sort of look like they're never going to get resolved and nobody will ever give in. And uh, one of my graduate students and I managed to make a sort of decisive measurement. And by weird coincidence, Bill, uh, who's at Harvard, or was at Harvard at the time, he's not anymore, just happened to be visiting us in Princeton that day. And he dropped by my office to say hello. And half an hour earlier, my student had brought me the result. And I, so I said, hey, Bill, look at this. You know, and it shows that the other guys were right. I didn't say that. <laughs> but, but he said, oh, oh, we're wrong. And that was the end of it. He never argued for it again. I've never seen anything. Yeah, that's admirable. No, that's it's admirable really, and astonishingly rare. I never see that with philosophers, unfortunately. It's rare in science. I mean, yeah. You know, well, yeah. being, being right and wrong is just a different deal in, among the philosophers, I feel. I mean, not only do they do it about philosophy, but scientists also often talk about other areas of science that they're not qualified in. You know, like if I'm talking to a reporter, I'm suddenly an expert on, you know, quantum, you know, everything in science. <laughs> yeah. That's misportrayed in the movies, too. You know, the hero scientist mm -hmm. is, you know, knows everything that's known. Okay. So, Anyway, That's the science reporting so bad. But thanks for your time today. Well, thanks, thanks great. for the great opportunity. Great. Thank you for, for coming this morning and then for also joining us on the podcast. And thanks to Robin and Susan as well. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and having me. And I must say, I feel uh, uh, my awareness is now feel, filled with a sort of envy of you guys <laughs> again, getting to uh, uh, undertake this project and participate in these things. It's uh, it's uh, actually uh, seems like a, a really amazing uh, experience and opportunity and project that you're, you're set out on. That was fun. Yeah, that was really interesting.